Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dogwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're continuing our look at Lovecraft's classic weird tale, The Dunwich Horror. Before we get into that, though, what is going on? The good folks over at the HPLHS have released the Dark Adventure Radio Theatre adaptation of Mask of the Arthur I think we all went to go see the performance of Day of the Beast and Haunter of the Dark as well that yeah. they uh, did at Necronomicon last. That was really good, so I'm looking forward to this one for Masks. Yeah, yeah, so um, I, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I have heard rumours that uh, in amongst the, the mourners at a certain funeral, uh, it would probably be a spoiler to mention whose funeral, that there are some familiar names that turn up. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that. Also, uh, and, and I've just listened to the HPLHS version of the Dunwich Horror, which we'll talk about later, which is a very entertaining listen. Coming up on Saturday, the 23rd of February, 2019, at Station Hotel in Dudley, there is a games convention called the Dudley Bug Ball. Now, I recall going to earlier iterations of this convention many years ago, back in the early 2000s. So I think this is like 15, 16, 17 years ago since this convention was held, and it's going to be happening again this February. So I hope to be there. I think perhaps Mike Mason will be there. Uh, Well, he's a guest of honour, so I hope he will be. Is he? Ah, okay. So marvellous. So hope to see people there. And our good friends Noah Lloyd and Matt Ryan uh, do a website called Reckoning of the Dead, wherein they publish short, I mean, one-page Call of Cthulhu scenarios. And, uh, Paul, you received something marvellous through the post from them, didn't you? Yes, I got the Reckoning of the Dead 2018 annual, featuring two scenarios, one-page scenarios that each of them have expanded into a fuller-length scenario that's there in paper fanzine format yeah marvelous and they have a patreon which you can find on patreon under reckoning of the dead alongside their website reckoningofthedead.com so do you think we can take sole credit for this resurrection of gaming fanzines probably not no but we should we should <laughs> okay. damn it. yeah something weird has come to us in the post not, yes. not, not the jumbo-sized uh, Seas for Cthulhu plush, plush palooza which turned up at my house a couple of days ago. That thing's as, small, as big as a small oh, child. Oh, for fuck's hey. sake. <laughs> <laughs> I, also got, I also got the American flag one as well, so that is cute. But an American flag plush Cthulhu. Yeah, I'll send you some photos for the <laughs> no, show notes. No, you, you really don't have to, Matt. You really don't have to. <laughs> you didn't no. bring it with you. No, we, we scared him with the last one before. I thought, How big oh, is the, the American flag one? Uh, it's only the foot tall one. The, the jumbo ones that say it's about the size of a small child. Right. Or a large child, given your hand measurements there. Yeah, but, 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 but okay. that tall off the ground. So anyway, a package. Yeah, a different package. Do you want to shred this open, Matt? Ah, okay. Gently, because oh, it's, gently. Got, it's got Do Not Bend written all over it. Yeah. So, so th- this package has been sent to us uh, by Lord Morty. So last episode, we played out with a, a song by Craftian, which is a, uh, I think, black metal is a... It is black metal, isn't it? It's uh, metal of some sort. It, it, yes. It's music. Uh, band influenced by Lovecraft, and Lord Morty is their singer, and he has sent us some goodies. Oh, hang on. Oh. Right, there's a, first of all, there's a huge note inside. Oh. Right. Right, this is why it's A3. 
Scott, thanks for being an influential person in my life. I wish you and all the good friends all my genuine Yuletide cheer. Regards, Lord Mordy. P.S. This shirt has been rolled up for innumerable eons. Excuse the wrinkles. Smiley face. <laughs> oh, right. That uh, is absolutely lovely. And, oh, it's a poster, I think. Right. Me. Um, I'll pass you. Back to go through. Scott is now taking the package and withdrawing oh, yes. the shirt. Yes, it's black. The shirt. As you would expect. Oh, and and what other color would it there be? There is something tucked inside as well. Ooh. Oh. Do you do you want to open the okay. the package within packages, Paul? This is like Christmas all over again. It's like Russian doll. <laughs> right, sellotape defeated. Inside we have. Aha! It is a Craftian poster. Very nice one of Cthulhu. Oh, fat one, two, three of them. Ah, yeah. magic number. Fantastic. Yeah. Cosmic reawakening with uh, dear friend the Great Tentacle One rising from the waves. Oh my. Marvellous, marvellous. And maybe window stickers, perhaps, or... Bumper again, stickers. Bumper stickers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, also crafty. Oh, cool. Very yeah. cool. And the T-shirt, let me show this to the two of you. I've, I've just had a quick look. This is a marvellous design. Oh, right, nice. <laughs> yeah. do, do, do you want to try describing that, Paul? Uh, well, I'd say a kind of a, a goth-looking H.P. Lovecraft before a, a tentacled writing of, of Craftian. What would oh, you say? I would have said yeah. that's more Lovecraft if he was doing an, um, doing cosplay of Alice Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so certainly with full metal makeup on. Yeah. Oh, that, that is a damn fine looking that is, t-shirt. That's nice. <laughs> yes, I, I think I'll be sporting this at Necronomicon. <laughs> we also have a CD of Craftion Cosmic Reawakening. Well, thank well, you very much, Lord Mordy. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, that's phenomenally generous of you. And this is very, very cool. Yeah, hey, thank you very much. <laughs> Examination of Lovecraft's classic weird tale, the Dunwich Horror. When we left things last time, the real Dunwich Horror was about to start, so the last two episodes have just been prologue. That's what the story says in the text, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the actual page count of the whole thing, he's lying. I mean, that's half the story gone by mm. this stage, so that's a long prologue. But it makes you wonder if you were running this as a scenario, would that all be backstory to what happens now? Hmm. A lot of it certainly would be, because if you think of this as a Call of Cthulhu investigation, the investigator or the main investigator is Dr. Armitage. He has appeared, but he appeared very much at the tail end of what we covered so far. Most of what went before with the Waitley family and their background in Dunwich, I mean, that is, in a Call of Cthulhu scenario, backstory. It does make you wonder how much got left on the cutting room floor, then, if he thought that the rest was going to be longer. Because I'd explain short backstory, long bit of the horror. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, some of the Call of Cthulhu scenarios I've edited, they've been as much backstory as they have scenario. <laughs> in the, you've got to go through and cut those backstories down, folks. So Wilbur is dead, Old Man Waitley is dead, and Wilbur's mother, Lavinia, is also dead at this stage. So, yeah, I mean, everything's resolved, isn't it? I mean, we, we can finish here. Or is it? I want to go get that gold from that weird house of theirs. Well, it's commented upon that it's not found. They don't find any of this gold. So where was old man Whaley getting all this gold? I foresee a scenario sequel. So a few weeks later, things get weird as the real Dunwich horror begins. 
Luther Brown, a hired boy who speaks in a dialect that borders on parody, encounters the trail left by some monstrous thing. Mud and undergrowth have been trampled by some entity that left footprints as big as barrel heads covered in a tarry slime. Yeah, tarry slime. That's pretty evocative. Yeah. I feel grubby just thinking about that. So this massive thing is invisible, we learn, but it does leave this black slime behind and these massive, I mean, what, like two foot across, big round footprints stamped into the earth? That's an interesting point, though, isn't it? That if the creature itself is invisible, why isn't the slime it leaves behind? That would almost be more disquieting, wouldn't it? That if there was this really sticky, viscous substance covering stuff, but you couldn't see it, you could just feel it. I mean, Mm. that'd be really quite nasty. Keep thinking either you see it leave the invisible bulk, or maybe it just appears a little while later after it's gone. Hmm. This entity has caused destruction wherever it has travelled, crushing trees and draining cows of blood. It seems to have destroyed the old Waitley house and then headed to Cold Spring Glen, home to many, now agitated, whipperills. We see a lot of bad things happen to cows in this story. We get reports of mutilated cattle. And it got me thinking of that throwaway bit in the Malleus Monstorum, where Yogg-Sothoth is associated sometimes with UFO sightings. I mean, this was a common trope. You don't see it so much these days, but in the 1990s, when UFOs made a big comeback, I mean, partly due to the X-Files and partly due to all the, the craziness surrounding the millennium, Due to the appearance of UFOs, you mean, Scott? Well, yes, yeah. That, Tell the that, truth, man. That, that too, that too, yes. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I am part of the problem. But cattle mutilation was this big thing. The idea that aliens would come down to Earth and apparently have nothing better to do with their time than stick probes up people's asses and cut cows up. Well, that's what they did at Lavinia, wasn't it? <laughs> it was she so, certainly got a probe somehow. Yeah, I... I, I Either, <laughs> either Wilbur was born from somewhere other than you might expect, or the probe didn't go up her ass. Ding, 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 ding. Let's explain the birds and the beast. <laughs> I think there was a little bit done to redress some of the poor cow torture and mutilation here. When Littlest Lovecraft ran their Kickstarter for the illustrated version of the Dumb Witch Horror, making it a kid's bedtime story. They did a supplement for this where it was tales about cows. But not about cow mutilators. I admit it, I didn't get it. It was a, it was a stretch ah, on for you, a higher reward level. You, you didn't so. get it, Matt. I'm tempted. I'm, I could potentially go yeah, back come and on. find it from somewhere. But. And also, for those of you who played Illuminati, the Steve Jackson game back in the 80s... Oh, the there, anal probe! Yeah. The, the, <laughs> what is it with you and the anal probe? So... No, there was, there we're was getting a, an unwanted insight into Matt's mind here, aren't we? There was, a, there was a group called the Cattle Mutilators. Oh, that was one of the groups. Yes. That was on a card, yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking of a different one. It might be. I think, yeah, you're abdu- definitely thinking of a different game there. <laughs> so, um, no, Abduction. But I think it's the same group. That, uh, this is like a Conspiracy X right. uh, card game. But yeah, there is, there is a single anal probe card in there. Cow tipping is the modern cattle mutilation, isn't it? Oh, I that don't think it's particularly to- modern. Is it not? No, it's, oh God, it's been, a... I think it's been around for, for decades. Oh, I thought yeah. cattle mutilation was looked down upon a bit and supplanted by cow tipping. No, no, no. I think cow tipping predates the 1990s, certainly. Well, I think cattle mutilation reports probably go back to the 70s as well. Cow tipping, I certainly remember seeing in films from the, the 1960s and 70s. I think you should write a, an academic paper on it, Scott. <laughs> yes, yeah. That is, this is clearly what I was born to do. <laughs> and... 
The word cow, how do you spell the word cow, Matt? C-O-W. Where's the A? Because Lovecraft comments that on a 1928 visit to Vermont, he writes to his aunt saying that the people here say cow as C-A-O-W. How you pronounce that? I'm not sure. Cow and down, D-A-O-W-N for down, down, and other country idioms. But in 29, he states that the Yankee farmers don't talk like that but they do down in Vermont. And Jason Eckhart thinks that Lovecraft got this dialect from James Russell Lowell's The Biglow Papers. These are a satirical political poetry written in the Yankee dialect, first published in the Boston Courier in 1848-62. Lowell was an academic and poet and lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, dying in 1891. So it's likely that Lovecraft would have been aware of these things, given it was a kind of a local lad. Mm. The use of dialect in this story, I mean, it's weird and intrusive. And it is generally when Lovecraft does it in his stories anyway. And the fact that it's not really based on the local dialects just makes it worse somehow. I've read very few stories that I thought had been improved by the inclusion of speech and dialect. It's generally at best distracting and sometimes impenetrable and, and borderline offensive. There are exceptions. I mean, like uh, Irvin Welsh, who writes his books in Scots in, instead of English. Like Trainspotting, for example, is written in Scots. That's a somewhat different choice. I mean, with this, as in a number of other terrible examples from pulps, someone is trying to replicate not just the idioms, but the speech patterns phonetically of how someone else speaks, and does so to the point of parody. And I think this undermines the horror in the Dunwich Horror. It's just completely unnecessary. It does feel like a bit of a distraction when I'm reading it. I quite enjoy reading it and trying to decipher sometimes what exactly the words are that are being said, because sometimes it's not that clear to me. It doesn't put me off, but I do take your point that it does feel a bit like parody. Yeah, there are more subtle ways of doing it. I mean, I've been reading a lot of John Steinbeck recently, and Steinbeck was very good at capturing vernacular and capturing the patterns of people's speeches. Mm. But he didn't do this almost mocking alternate spellings and this caricature of how people spoke. It's a subtle distinction, but I think an important one. It does certainly seem to me that it's anyone of a lower standing or lower class yeah. that he will refer to, You, or at least give them this particular method of which is written on the page in which they speak. But then anyone who's prim, proper, has an education, is a librarian, etc., speaks perfectly RP. Yeah. That there's, It's just the words you would normally see on the page. There's no messing around with accents or anything. There's always very derogatory. Oh yeah, he doesn't like this character, so he's going to make him sound like a country bumpkin. And listen to the previous episode for Matt rendering a bit of that text into Wait, the... Wait, uh, one Waitley. Yes. <laughs> Making skull face palm. <laughs> he brings it to life as no one else can. Anyway, moving back to the story. The local newspaper writes a humorous piece about these goings-on, which the Associated Press picks up. These events become less funny, however, when the Fry Farm is attacked the following night. Yeah, in the article, they do make reference that perhaps what blew up the Waitley house was a still and that they were perhaps brewing bootleg whiskey because this is in the time of prohibition. And, you know, maybe this whiskey, well, could be a seed for another scenario, eh, Scott? Oh, God, no, no, that'd never work. 
Mm. Some listeners know what we're referring to there, I think. <laughs> I drank what? Selena Fry calls round the local party lines for help, but none of her neighbours dare come to the family's aid before daybreak. By then, the farmhouse is a wreck, and the entire family is missing. So, have any of you actually ever used a party line? God have I, yes. So, do you want to explain to our, uh, perhaps, younger or less rural listeners what a party line is? You mean me, don't you? Damn you, kids! (laughs) (laughs) Well... In an earlier episode, I did say this reminded me of my youth, this story, in many ways, in the rural background and the the old farms. And and, the invisible twin. Yeah, and the unintelligible dialogue and accents and so on. And a party line where I lived was on a road on the edge of town, and my house, we had our own phone line. But along at the neighbour's house and the next probably four or five houses were all on the same phone line not phone line but same phone number so if you picked up the phone there and somebody else was using that line it was like if you're downstairs and you pick up the landline and somebody's on the landline upstairs you'll hear what they're saying right Mm -hmm. it was like that but those other lines are in other people's houses and that's a party line so if you picked up the phone and somebody's on it you'd just put phone down unless you were a gossip monger and wanted to uh, listen in and um yeah this led to an unfortunate incident in my youth that i don't really want to go into right now but it did okay <laughs> you, you, you can't just allude to something like that and especially, right. when, especially with a grin as big as that yeah, yeah. uh I, I was looking after the cats of this lady along the road and i don't know why i was like a little kid i was about Ah, I guess seven or eight. And I picked up the telephone and there was somebody on it. So I kind of listened in for a bit. And I thought it was just like a cross line because occasionally back in those days, another thing that would happen is sometimes you'd pick up like your telephone Mm. and you'd hear other people talking. Yeah, I I remember that. I mean, I never had a party line when I was a kid, but... No, I'm not talking about a party line. No, no, yeah, yeah. I was about to say, just a regular phone system in Hong Kong was notorious for that, but you're back in the 70s. So I I feel ashamed to say, I said something silly, not really offensive, but something silly on the line. (laughs) And then the lady said, who's that? And then the other one said... I bet it's that fricker boy. I've seen him going into the house. And I'm like, oh shit, I've been rattled. Oh, brilliant. Oh, oh that was so embarrassing. I can imagine. So, uh, yeah. So there is the dangers of the party line right there. But it does occur to me. Uh, so just let me say, I've felt bad about that ever since. <laughs> It does occur to me that party lines are perhaps a great scenario hook. Where you've got a, a rural location like this and people are sharing the lines, obviously it's a great way to keep disparate, isolated people in touch. But yeah, what you were talking about with overhearing stuff and overhearing bits of other people's conversations, what you overhear could be something that hints at a sinister conspiracy or you overhear the horrors that someone else is going through and and that could lead you into a scenario. I mean, it almost becomes like a, an audio version of rear window there mm. and until the 50s a high proportion of america was still on party lines oh yeah yeah i mean they, they persisted until i think the 70s or 80s in some locations yeah meanwhile back in arkham dr armitage has been working on the manuscript recovered from the waitley farm 
While it seems to be written in some ancient variant of Arabic, he suspects that this is actually a cipher. Yep, definitely an investigator. With the help of a list of texts that appear to be plucked from Lovecraft's copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica, he sets to work on deciphering it. These days, it's so easy to turn to Wikipedia and just quickly look up the things that you need to look up. And this is Lovecraft doing the same thing back before the internet. I mean, he had a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and when he needed detail for the story here to flesh something out, he not only looked it up, but he did what I hope the three of us are generally too professional to do, and basically just cribbed the entry. But imagine this in a game. You give them this script, but it's all in code, and then you give them the cipher, and the player gets to decode it all. Oh, just fuck That would be great. <laughs> I knew where you were going with that. <laughs> Isn't that a brilliant idea? It's, it's fantastic yeah. fun, I hear. Scott, <sighs> you're up for that, right? Always, always. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fun. Actually, Matt would like that. Hell yeah, I, I did that yeah. for hours when we played over the I edge. Know, that was fucking did. amazing. Yeah, even though it wasn't actually a code. <laughs> <laughs> there was a code at the end of it, I just missed it. <laughs> Finally, Armitage breaks the code and is not happy with what he learns. An entry written by Wilbur Waitley in 1916, when he was three and a half. Yeah, you figured this, right? He was three and a half, because I didn't yeah. pick up on that. Yeah, because it doesn't say that in the story. No, but no, no, I can't wait it yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the entry reads, Today I learned the Aklo for the Sabaoth, it ran, which did not like it being answerable from the hill and not from the air. That upstairs more ahead of me than I thought it would be, and is not like to have much earth brain. Shot Elam Hutchins's collie, Jack, when he went to bite me, and Elam said he would kill me if he dast. I guess he won't. Grandfather kept me saying the dough formula last night, and I think I saw the inner city at the two magnetic poles. I shall go to those poles when the earth is cleared off, if I can't break through with the dough now formula when I commit it. They from the air told me at Sabbat that it will be years before I can clear off the earth, and I guess Grandfather will be dead then, so I shall have to learn all the angles of the planes and all the formulas between the ear and the nkr. They from outside will help, but they cannot take body without human blood. That upstairs looks like it will have the right cast. I can see it a little when I make the vorish sign or blow the powder of Ebengazi at it, and it is near like them at May Eve on the hill. The other face may wear off some. I wonder how I shall look when the earth is clear and there are no earth beings on it. He that came with the Aklosabaoth said I shall be transfigured, there being much of the outside to work on. There's a cultist outlaying their master plan, if ever I saw one. I think this is a, a lovely piece. I mean, there's all sorts of sinister implications. In there. And it's a good way of getting the internal dialogue or what Wilbur was actually up to, to the reader, I think. I mean, there's some mundane things here about him just shooting dogs yeah. uh, and how his grandfather got him to learn formulae. So it's obvious he's working at this stuff. He isn't really innately magic. He's having to learn rituals mm. and, and learn these things. And we see references here, which we touched on earlier, to Arthur Mekin. In particular, he talks about the Vorish sign because there's those references to the Vor that we see in the white people. And also to Aklo, which is the language that we see mentioned a few times in the white people. And what's the Sabaoth? Sabaoth apparently is, is a Hebrew word meaning hosts or armies. 
it almost sounds like these otherworldly forces that whoever performs these rituals will call into being or call to enter our world. Well, it seems like he has communed with them because he still yeah. talks about things they've said to him. In yeah, this quote. but but he he talks about you know, the forces of the air and you're talking to it's almost like you know the classic Elizabethan occultist stuff of communing with outside forces, mm. communing with the angels, or performing scrying rituals, and it comes across as being that, very that kind of thing that these aren't conversations with things that are here in our world yeah that seems really cool there's a lovely couple of throwaway references in there as well that i particularly like the inner city at the two magnetic poles being the big one there yes they think yeah what is that come on tell me more don't it's a great image isn't it it's really undefined what is it i don't know but it sounds really cool. Well, you remember many, many episodes ago when we were talking about subterranean spaces in Lovecraft, we touched upon the fact that he hinted a few times at a hollow earth being part of his mythos, or at least you know that the, there were ties to hollow earth theory. Hinted at in uh, at the Mountains of Madness with all the great catacombs and so on that run around the South Pole. Mm-hmm. There's all these huge subterranean spaces that seem to link up in, say, the Rats and the Walls. Mm. It seems to hint that maybe something like that is happening up in the north as well. These revelations take a toll on Armitage, who incurs significant sand loss and a resulting bout of madness. After a short period of feverish terror, he contacts his fellow investigators, Professor Rice and Dr. Morgan, and forms a party. (laughs) Only three (laughs) players, but maybe the others were busy that night. And this really does seem to take a toll on Armitage. Mm. We learn a couple of things about Armitage here. One is that he's married. His wife brings him breakfast and so on. And also, he's 73 years old. Yes. <laughs> well, well, he's only taken a couple of downturns in the investigator development phase there. Well, well true. Uh, alternatively, he's a pop Cthulhu character because he does some very physical things later on in the story, which seem to indicate that he's not suffering any movement penalties or hasn't had reduced physical stats. So I think this points to this being a pop Cthulhu scenario, not Call of Cthulhu. You know who else will be 73 this year? Um, Donald yeah. Trump. No, I'm not saying he's Professor Armitage in any way. I'm just you know, making a comparison. I would have pinned him more as one of the Waitleys, but fair enough. <laughs> just making a parallel. <laughs> oh, yes. But I was really struck by him reading this book that it's not only seems to be draining his sanity, you know, he does show signs he's really disorientated by it, and but he seems to be physically weakened oh, by yeah. it, as if this is almost a mortal trial, like a physical battle that he's up to. It almost kills him. He runs a fever. I mean, that's a physical symptom. Yeah. I don't think, you know, normally people receiving a traumatic shock would run a fever from it. This makes it sound almost like the knowledge what he learns is like an infection. I got a fever! <laughs> <laughs> and the only cure is the powder of Ibn Ghazi. <laughs> the three academics, investigators, become convinced that the strange sorceries conjured up by the Waitleys present an existential threat to the world and try to come up with countermeasures. Armitage believes that the answer also lies in wizardry yes. and so researches suitable magics. That's my kind of investigator going straight <laughs> to the magic. <laughs> And I guess it is a fair assumption based on what we've seen from Wilbur's writings there that what he's doing does present an existential threat. We talked about how the plan was to apparently not even just wipe the world clean but move the Earth to a different dimension or a different location in space. 
This is an odd thing to me. Why would that happen? I mean, if what is the purpose is to bring back the uh, the old ones or bring back Yogg-Sothoth and open the gate and so on, why does it involve moving the Earth somewhere else? And is this to you know, move it to somewhere that's more hospitable to them? In which case, why does it have to be the Earth? I'm not saying that it doesn't make any sense. It does because we don't understand the schemes of the great old ones. But it's something that doesn't seem to make human sense. The stars must be right in some part of the universe. Move it to where it is, wake them up, job done. The investigators arrive in Dunwich after the destruction of the Fry Farm. A group of state police officers went hunting the creature in Cold Spring Glen, ignoring the warnings of locals and have not been seen since. Learning from their mistake, the three academics stand watch by the Glen, but the entity lies low. That's you as the GM just telling them, no, you're not calling the police, this is what happened to the last bunch, you're not doing that shit. Exactly, and this is a perfect example of how to deal with investigators who call the police. Just kill all the police, kill them all, make them deal with the problem themselves. The following day, amid thunderstorms, the creature strikes again. It has only attacked by night before, but this day is unnaturally dark. This time, the entity destroys the bishop farm, again taking the entire family. This, understandably, fuels panic in the community. And thunderstorms seem to be a common theme, or at least thunder and lightning. I mean, we'll see more of that later, and there's the implication somewhere that this strange smell that is associated with the Great Old Ones is a smell of thunder. I mean, that's an interesting thing to me. I mean, what does that suggest? Does it suggest that perhaps their intrusion into our world is so rich with energy that it behaves almost like a thunderstorm it disrupts the natural order of things in the same way that a thunderstorm does you've got connotations there with friction and static that then or friction that would then lead to static electricity build up so there is an inherent reaction against that it almost seems as if it's something that's born out of conflict that because they aren't at all natural in this context Happily, the trio of academics have arrived fully equipped to go monster hunting. Armitage has a magical formula memorised and another one written down, not to mention a flashlight. How many investigators have we come across that don't remember to pick up a fucking torch? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it, yeah, it's something that I find myself either fudging or having fun with. That yeah, every now and then you'll get players who want to poke around in a cave or go underground or whatever. The, the investigators just haven't thought to bring a light source with them. How do you deal with that? Do you just hand wave the fact and it's sort of, oh, it doesn't matter that it's dark? Or, or do you just use that as a means to... Ramp up the terror. If it's a modern day game, I'd say, yep, your battery's now at roll percentage. That much much (laughs) Mm. percent, and you can see the number falling. Alternatively, you just wait until a really key moment and have them make a group luck roll. If they fail, that's the point at which the battery dies. (laughs) Rice is armed with a metal sprayer of the sort used in combating insects. Normally, this would seem inadequate against a monster of this size, the size of a house. The academics are smarter than that, however, and have loaded it with the powder mentioned by Wilbur in his diary as being capable of rendering the creature visible. Now, this kind of sprayer, this manual sort of sprayer that one would carry around for dusting roses or something like that, really would create a cloud not that big, I would have thought, a few feet. Because if you think of like a modern pressure washer which is powered by electricity. You can wash a car with it, you can wash a truck with it. They make a massive cloud. But a little manual one, I've used manual ones 
it tends to be like a jet or you can make it into a spray, but it's not that big. I don't think you could illuminate something the size of a house with it. Well, does that suggest then that the way the powder of Ibengazi works is you don't have to entirely coat the creature that is just contact at any point? Maybe so. Maybe so, yes. Yes, that would kind of work. Because if I was keeper here, I'd say, no, that's not going to work. It's not going to coat the whole thing. You'll just see a little bit of it. You'll yeah. see its foot. <laughs> and then you can work out just how big it is yeah. from that. Morgan, rather uselessly, has brought a big game rifle. I never think a big game rifle is useless in any game I play. Despite being told that the creature cannot be hurt by such things. Lies. In this, he sets the template for generations of Cthulhu investigators to come. Hell yeah. Two words. <laughs> Elephant gun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what the guy has in the HPLHS adaptation. It is an elephant gun. He gives the calibre and everything. Sounds great. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That is one big raffle you got there, sir. It's a 577 Nitro Express. Made to take down an elephant in a single shot. Reckon a gun like that will take down something like this thing? No, but it makes him feel better. But yeah, it's it's one of these joys as a keeper where you get this moment where someone has brought an elephant gun or something like that and then you just throw a creature at them which is completely impervious to bullets. That false sense of security. Yes, I've got this huge gun, it can kill anything. Well, except apparently for the thing that's about to kill me. Shit. Yeah, you're out there in the dark waiting for this thing to come and then it's a fire vampire. <laughs> Oops. Now the three of us, you know, there's three of us and there's three of them. Which one would you pick to play? So there's white-bearded Armitage, who has learnt formulae and has an electric flashlight. There's stocky, iron-grey Rice, who has his sprayer. And there's lean, youngish Morgan with his elephant gun. Who are you going to go for? I think, Scott, you have to be uh, Armitage with his formulae and electric flashlight, don't you? I don't know. I see myself as more of a bug sprayer. Do you? Yeah. You're the bug I... sprayer? Yes. All right. Is that no, a bit I, more William Burroughs than uh, yeah, Lovecraft? Absolutely, right. yeah. Exterminator, okay. <laughs> I yes. That. No, no, I was thinking that Matt would be Armitage just simply because he's the one learning all the sorcery. Yeah, he went straight for get, the books. Let's get drawn to that. Mm. That leaves me with the elephant gun. Yeah. <laughs> Kaboom. Yeah, well, he is lean and youngish, so, you know, I guess that's true. Yes, okay, well, typecast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, beats lean in the thirst. <laughs> Before the party can embark upon their mission, however, there is one more task to complete. Armitage saw that the time for positive action had come and spoke decisively to the faltering group of frightened rustics. I think there's a couple of interesting things here. One is that it shows the use of social skills in Call of Cthulhu. He gets up there, he makes his persuade roll, possibly even with a penalty die because they're frightened and there's a lot of them. Or rather, maybe a hard success. And as a result, he does manage to expand his party significantly. There's also, I think, going back almost to this classist side of the way Lovecraft depicts these people. We, we talked before about the way he describes some of them as being degenerate, and then we were talking about the accents and so on. Again, this almost seems to be, I'm the intelligent, well-educated academic, I'm clearly in charge, I'm going to come along into your backyard, into the countryside that you all know well, your home, and I'm going to be in charge of all of you, I'm going to show you what to do, because you're clearly uneducated rabble, you're following me now. Well, I think you're framing it in a rather negative way, Scott. He's saying, like, you know, there's a terrible monster out there. We've got to go and sort it out, and we need you people to come and help us. Let's all band together for the good of the common people. But, we, I mean, this we need is... human shields. 
This is something that I see in a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, which disquiets me sometimes, in that you do have a localised problem. You know, say it's a neighbourhood in New York or, or a rural location in the countryside. And you've got the people who live there who've been dealing with the problem, who know the situation, know the location well. And yet it's a conceit that somehow they haven't been able to contain it, that they don't know what to do about it. And they've been waiting for a bunch of Cthulhu investigators who are clearly more educated than them or of a better social class or whatever to come in and fix all their problems for them. And it seems sort of patronising and in some cases almost quite colonialist. What I like, though, is that you say they get them to help them. What they actually do is get a bunch of guys to come down the road with them and then those three go off up the hill <laughs> yes. to fight the monster, while the guys they've just recruited, as you say, stand down in the road with one telescope watching the action. Yeah. So basically, the keeper has said, yeah, all right, you've got all these NPCs. Yeah, they're not coming with you, though, because I can't be asked to handle all those. <laughs> They'll just stay back. You guys, you're the party, you do it. Yeah, they, they haven't recruited a party, they've recruited an audience. Yeah. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of, that they need a narrator to show what happens to them in case everything goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. Report back to the rest of the world if we end up dying. Thank you. And so we leave it there as our three intrepid heroes head up the hill to face the Dunwich Horror. Thank you. Thank you. It is that time in the show once again when we thank all you lovely people who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you pledge helps pay for the running costs and and just generally makes the show possible. So thank you to each and every one of you. And we have a lot of new people to thank this episode. We put out a new issue of The Blasphemous Tome, and we have had a lot of backers as a result. And so thank you to each and every one of you, and let's thank some of you by name. Thank you very much to Greg Parsons. So, thank you very much, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. And thank you very much to Zachary Edgerton. Thank you, Zachary. Hey, thank you, Zachary. And thank you to John A. Anthony. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you very much, John. And also thanks to Steve Powley. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And thank you to Julian Lawrence. Thanks, Julian. Indeed, thanks, Julian. And thank you to Evan Perlman. Hey, thank you, Evan. Thank you very much, Evan. Also, our thanks go out to Wosiek Kobsa. And again, I'm hoping I've got the pronunciation right there. But thank you very much anyway. Yes, thank you very much, Wosiek, and I really hope we're not mangling your name too badly. Thank you very much, Wosiek. And thank you very much to Michael Watson. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to Craig Parent. Yep, thank you very much, Craig. Thank you, Craig. And also thanks go out to Ron Fricky. So thank you very much, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. And thank you to Chase T. Hopper. Thank you, Chase. Hey, thank you, Chase. And last off, here's a name to conjure with. Thanks to Rick Mines. Hey, thank you very much, Rick. Yes, thank you very much, Rick. Rick being the head of Chaosium. Well, after that long list of $1 backers, we've got another list of $3 backers. So, starting off at the $3 level, our thanks and cheers go out to Brett McDaniel. So, thank you very much and cheers, Brett. Thank you and cheers, Brett. Cheers, Brett. And thank you and cheers to uh, Hargrim. Cheers, Hargrim. Yeah, the, the singular there. Cheers, Hargrim. And thanks and cheers to Gabe Harkins. Thank you very much and cheers, Gabe. And thank you and cheers, Gabe. And also cheers and our thanks go out to Daniel Knirim. So thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you and cheers, Daniel. Cheers, Daniel. And our thanks and cheers go out to John Stitt. 
Cheers, John. Cheers, John. And cheers and thanks to Pete Nixon. Hey, thank you very much, Pete. Thank you and cheers, Pete. And more cheers and thanks go out to Ricardo Campari. So, thank you very much, Ricardo. Thank you and cheers, Ricardo. Cheers, Ricardo. It seems appropriate making a toast to somebody with the surname Campari. But, but we're not toasting with Campari, so is, is, is that still fair? And finally, thank you and cheers to Joseph Salvador. Cheers, Joseph. Cheers, Joseph. You say, finally. <laughs> yes. I, I see more names on this list. Yes. Well, we have a lot of new $5 backers to thank. And those of you who are familiar with the podcast will know that we thank such people through the medium of song. Lies. Song. <laughs> song. But... For health and safety reasons, primarily, we limit ourselves to two songs per episode. So it will take a little while for us to get through this backlog. Apologies if you're waiting a while for it. Your time will come. Now, perhaps first, we should just begin with somebody who we've already sung to, but just to extend a thank you to them because they've upped their pledge. Recently, I created some $10 level pledges, each one with their own title. And Curtis Takahashi has been kind enough to upgrade his pledge to $10 and take on the title of Solid Shoggoth. So thank you very much, Curtis. Yeah, thank you very much and welcome to Shoggothhood. Indeed. Thank you very much, Curtis. Enjoy the pit. But then... We must move on to the songs themselves. There's, there's no putting it off any longer. I'm, I'm sorry about this, but we have to do it. And the first one today goes out to our old friend, Matt Knott, our keeper at the Milton Keynes Role Playing Games Club. I've known Matt since, oh, about 1995, I think. Oh, bloody. Um, yeah, from, and I think we got together through a, a classified ad, <laughs> either in <laughs> Arcane. The old magazine, the role-playing game magazine, or perhaps it was through the UK Role Players Usenet group. Oh, gosh. Um, he was in Bletchley and I was in Buckingham. I'd just come back from travelling. And we got together and formed a small group. This was before the Milton Keynes Club. And he was about the first guy that I got to know around here that was a role player, you know, once I moved back here after many years. Yeah, I remember he turned up at Concrete Cow, uh, it must be at least 10 years ago, and you hadn't seen him for some time at that stage. Yeah, was, yeah. Like yeah, a sudden was, return to the fold. He was one of those people that was away from gaming for, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years, I, I would guess. Yeah. But now he's solidly back. Yeah, yeah he's our long-suffering keeper at the MKRPG group that's uh, had to endure us going through what, Escape from Innsmouth. The Grandmaster and the Arthurtep as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 One, and he's been playtest yeah. play a lot of stuff for Chaosium, hasn't oh, he? Um, Horror on Your Express for yeah. second edition that he did there. Yeah, there's loads of stuff. So, thank you very much, Matt. Indeed, thank you very much, Matt. Yeah, thank, thank you, Matt, and, and sorry to do this to you. Now, another song a little bit different. Um, as Paul mentioned, that they're the extra levels beyond five, but they still get the song benefit. This lovely individual, Mark Anthony Taylor, has come in at one of those $10 levels that just makes my heart warm when I see the title. He is like a Cthulhu plushie. 
So, so our song is basically just going to be a minute of me crying, is it? All oh, the sound of ripping and tearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mark Anthony. Thank you very much, Mark Anthony, and, and we hope you, you enjoy this. Mark Anthony Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, on social media, and we've had a new iTunes review from Six Ren in Canada, or Gren? Six Ren, yeah. A perfect resource for keepers and players, an incredible resource for fans of Call of Cthulhu, or any RPG for that matter, their intelligent approach to such topics as violence in games, mental illness, and diversity successfully bring a game created in the 80s to the 21st century. Keep up the good work, friends. Hey, hey. Well, thank you very much, Six Red. Now, that's absolutely lovely of you to say so, and, and has done wonders for our egos. And if any of the rest of you would like to write a review and help us feel better about ourselves, but more importantly, get the word out there to other new potential listeners, whether that review is on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you might get your reviews from, we would really, really appreciate it. If you do create a review somewhere that we might not otherwise see it, please send us a link or let us know somehow and we shall read it out. We've also had some great feedback on our recent episode about the Tour de Serpent. From Ivica on Discord, I really love how the sausage gets made stuff. When it came to running the campaign separately, how did the timing work between groups? As you mentioned, switching some chapters, did that come into play during testing, where Group A played in one order and Group B played in another, or was that all after the fact? I think everyone played it in roughly the same order, didn't they? Because when we transposed Iceland and Oklahoma... I think we did that after all the places. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. it was definitely afterwards because I remember Oklahoma being a lot later in my place test group. So we, I think we all played it through in a particular order, but then we moved around the order afterwards. I seem to think not all of you did India, or am I wrong? No, we all did India. I, the chapter I think that not everyone did was the Belt and Congo. Yeah, um, kind of one group definitely yeah, didn't do it. Yeah, because, my group didn't do that one. Uh, yeah, and I think my group didn't do it organically but we did it as a kind of separate thing uh-huh. whereas my group fell down the corridor and then yeah yes yeah i mean i guess sometimes if they're not going to do a particular part of the campaign when play testing you might just sort of say okay guys i know you're not actually going to go to this place but can we just yes contrive a reason why you would go there just so we can do this because we all know we're play testing here there's a bit of that that goes on or can go on, I think. Well, I've done that recently with the poison tree playtests that we're doing to say, this is how Scott's group ended up finishing the campaign. Please don't do this. We know how it goes that way. Do a different do a different ending. As far as how the timing went, certainly all of our playtests overlapped. Yours finished last, didn't it? Scott started first, first. Then Paul started running it at the club a little bit after. And then I started with my group down in Rickmansworth the last. 
what that meant was I'd sort of perhaps find some of the problems or some of the things that needed fleshing out with my group. And by the time we got to the other playtests, you know, we'd perhaps have changed things or tweaked them or added material in. And so it was still same, the basic campaign or the same basic campaign that all three groups played. But yeah, my group probably played the, the roughest version of it. Gave me a chance to turn that dial up to 11. <laughs> and Cthulhu Bob wrote on BlasphemousTomes.com, our website, When writing such a massive, globe-spanning campaign as Two-Headed Serpent or Masks, how do you avoid laying the tracks for a railroad? It seems sandboxing would be an awesome feat for the writers and an arduous task for the keeper. I suppose it's more just giving hints and instructions to say, well, this is one way it could go, this is another way it could go, this is another way it could go. It's like having using the sandbox example, drawing a couple of arrows pointing in different directions in said sandbox that point towards slightly different things and just giving hints, not laying down, these are the tracks you must go this way! <laughs> Rather than a railroad, I think it sort of feels more like modular, that you could yeah. put the bricks together in a different order and find your own way through it, so it's not just one track through the campaign. But by its very nature, the campaign... It's got a number of pages. There's a limit to the amount of content you put in and you want people to experience most of that content when they play it. Otherwise, what's it all for? So what we tried to do was present a number of ways that you could experience and, and paths through that content. Yeah, we basically provided instructions to the keeper for how to handle situations if the player characters did certain things, went off at different tangents, changed allegiances, um, or just did the unexpected, how you, they could then tailor the content that we provided to what the players were actually doing. And I think some of the chapters, as you alluded to, would play very differently depending on those allegiances that they had with the various factions so that kind of adds another layer of difference yeah. experience when the players go through the game. It doesn't necessarily add more complexity for the keeper, I think. A little bit more. They need to know of the three major NPC factions, which ones are the players getting on with and which ones are they kind of enemies of. I mean, one of the difficulties, I suppose, with writing any published campaign is you want to make sure it has a memorable ending. This is something that is perhaps easier to handle in a one-shot, in that you don't necessarily want a script to climax. Or at least you want to make sure that there are lots of different ways in which the player characters might get to a particular climax or resolve things, and not force them down a particular route. So, with the Two-Headed Serpent, we always figured that it was going to end in one particular location, but all sorts of wildly different things might happen depending on what the player characters had done to that stage. So, it was perhaps ever so slightly railroaded in that we wanted to try to get them to that location so we could have a big payoff, but at the same time we wanted to make sure that all the choices they made down that line made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And on the subject of the Two-Headed Serpent, we had a competition! We did. We have, from Chaosium, we have a copy of The Two-Headed Serpent to send to a listener. Yes, and we had a, a whole bunch of entries for this, which were fantastic. What we said we'd do, and what we're going to do, was pick our three favourites and then put those up on the website. But we only have one prize to give, so one person won. 
What actually happened, though, was the, the way we did it was we did a little scoring system whereby we each rated the individual entries on a uh, scale between 1 to 10, totaled up the points, and then the people with the highest scores won. What actually happened was we ended up with three people in joint third place. So we'll include five entries on the website. And runners-up, included in third place, equal third place, Wilson MacGyver, David South, and Cthulhu Bob. In second place, just the one entry here, this goes to Inkhorn. But our winner was someone who did something surprisingly audacious. We had a few different approaches here. Some people came up with completely fictional characters. Some people adapted characters from fiction. Wilson MacGyver, for example, adapted a real-life person. And our winner also adapted a real-life person. But the difference was the person he adapted was himself. Our winner is our good friend Frank Delventol, who, as we've alluded to a few times in the podcast, does inhuman feats of strength under the name Strongman Frank. And he came up with a, a pulp history backstory for himself as a 1930s pop character, as a sort of circus strongman type, and won us over. With the 2d6 damage bonus, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you say he came up with a fictional background, Scott. For all we know, this is true. Well, he would have to be about 100 years old, but then again, yeah. Who knows? Who knows, really? Who knows the mysteries of Frank? And I would like to say how wonderful it was to have so many entries. I mean, we had about, what, 10 or a dozen entries? About that, yeah. Yeah, which is great. Great to hear from so many people. So thank you for all your entries. They were great to read. So we will, as I said, put all of these up on BlasphemousTomes.com, link to it from the show notes. And yes, thank you to everyone who entered. And to wrap up, some final thoughts on the Dunwich Horror. I think more than any other Lovecraft story, the Dunwich Horror typifies the way a Call of Cthulhu scenario works. The Call of Cthulhu, the the story, has traditionally been in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook up until 7th edition. But it probably name aside, should have been the Dunwich Horror. Well, it made its way into the Investigator Handbook this time around. Yeah, I think it's a a very good introduction to how a Call of Cthulhu investigation works, and it has probably set up the template for a thousand Call of Cthulhu scenarios since then. I mean, it has it pretty much all. It's got academic investigators, it's got a rural location, it's got mm, libraries and kind of academia, it's got uh, old books, it's got monsters... It's got elephant guns, it's got, you know, some magic, some otherworldly things. It's got quite a lot of reference to various mythos deities and so on, is it? Well, maybe not that many deities, but some. It's certainly got the biggest excerpt from the Necronomicon in, yeah. in any Lovecraft story. Well, and also, it's what the investigators are trying to do, because there are an awful lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios which boil down to someone, a group of cultists, or a lone individual, or a monster, is performing a hideous ritual, and we must stop it, or we must deal with the fallout. I'm just suddenly thinking there's a great scenario seed there to when you said that this has given birth to a thousand scenarios, then a thousand elephant guns. What if someone's going around collecting all the elephant guns from failed investigators, and they've got this huge collection that they're trying to use? <laughs> that sounds more like an unknown army's game than Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, crossover time, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> Binding them together with gaffer tape. <laughs> combining the trigger into one massive... Hey, it, it works in Phantasm, putting four shotguns together, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> and that was a documentary. <laughs> 
But yeah, I think it has given it a template that we can see. Because when you're playing a role-playing game, I mean, we go back to D&D, there was a reason there was a party together. They were going down a dungeon to get treasure. But in so many games... It's like we'd well, have like a couple of people, like X Files style, where you've just got a couple of investigators going out to investigate something. And typically, your investigators do go in pairs. You don't tend to have a whole bunch. But here we see three, and then they recruit some others. So yeah. it does have that feel of a role playing game group. You know, I can see how my players would do that. And it's something we don't see an awful lot in Lovecraft. Most of his stories are a sole protagonist going off and, and facing down or stumbling across or investigating whatever the horror is. We've got some which sort of edge into this territory, like perhaps the rats in the walls. At the Mountains of Madness, because yep. there are two of them that go over to the city. Yeah, most certainly. But this feels perhaps most like a traditional Call of Cthulhu party. And also because quite a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios use Lovecraft Country as their setting, and this is set in the heart of Lovecraft Country. It is Dunwich. So it's the definitive, really. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time when we'll be going down to Dunwich once more in episode four of The Dunwich Horror. And we are going to finish it next time, Paul. Well, we'll have to wait and see. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Oh, there, well, there we go. Cows.